Hello and welcome to Women on Top with Holly Madasser, where the conversations focus on women, wealth, and social change. Holly and her guests, who represent many different fields, engage in transparent conversations that reflect professional and personal struggles, as well as accomplishment. Some are making strides to address societal problems. Others have chipped away at the proverbial glass ceiling. All are supporting the financial future and well-being of women. Through these conversations, we learn about embracing a purpose and lifting others up while ensuring our own future success. Now, here's your host, Holly Madasser. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Women on Top with Holly Madasser, a podcast devoted to women and their financial and personal empowerment. We're fortunate today to have with us Dr. Eli Hisham, a urogynecologist at Columbia University. Welcome, Eli, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. So, Eli, there's so much that I can talk about with you today that it's kind of hard to know where to start. Obviously, you have a passion for working with women and their reproductive health, but you're also a refugee and immigrant from Afghanistan. I wonder if you could kind of set the stage for us and talk a little bit just about your background and maybe how that's informed the person that you are today. Definitely. I think it's it's really hard not to look at someone's background and figure out who they are. So I'd love to start there. Um, so yeah, I am an Afghan refugee and it's hard to keep track these days on where in the Afghan historical timeline my refugee story began, but um, my family and I became refugees during the Soviet invasion. Um, So that was in the late 1980s, 1990s. Um, My parents were both actually physicians in Kabul. So I take after them. They had met in medical school and then their, you know, love story started there. But by the time I was born, they were both practicing in Kabul. My mom was an OBGYN. My father was a trauma surgeon. And they were staying within Afghanistan during the war. They hoped for a speedy end, um, as everyone does, I think, when when they're in the midst of something like that. And as year after year went by, they realized that wasn't going to be the case. And although they had made plans themselves internally of what they might have done when things got bad, things came to a very quick um, head for us. My father, being the surgeon that he is, well, at that point, you know, Afghan hospitals were, were, were state-run. And so at that point, they were run by the Soviets. You couldn't really help Afghan soldiers, uh, the Mujahideen, as we called them. But my father did. And my father would help Mujahideens for, for a while. And luckily, my parents both had great relations with, you know, both the teachers as well as the police officers, mostly because as, as a, you know, socialist state at that point, police officers, teachers, doctors were all the same. They all kind of started the same bracket of, you know, where your earnings are, you're one community. And so my mom often gave free care to the teachers and police officers, especially for their deliveries. Uh, With that, you know, they always had great relationships. And to our benefit, the times my mom, my dad would help Mujahideen soldiers even when it became known, um, the police would actually help us out. You know, they would be very kind and tell my dad, hey, you know, don't do it again, but here you can be back with your family. So my dad was imprisoned a few times. 
Um, however, one night he helped a very high ranking soldier and the police gave word to my father that they would not be able to help him this um, And with that, we had to leave Kabul pretty urgently. Um, we essentially, I believe, pretended it was my birthday, I think, or one of my siblings got the whole family together to say goodbye, um, had a bonfire where we actually burned any documents that had anything to do with us. So mm -hmm. no birth certificate. So, so, so sad. This is so reminiscent of what's going on in Ukraine right now. I'm, I'm sure that you can really identify and me too. I mean, my family immigrated from Iran. So I think one thing that most people don't realize in the United States is many immigrants don't want to leave their home country. You don't want to be a refugee. You, you do that because you have to in one way, shape or form. And you know we're seeing that right now with the Ukrainians. And fortunately for the Ukrainians, we live in a time of social media and access and people can take videos on their cell phones and transmit it all around the world. But I know when my family did that in 1969 and years later, that wasn't the case. And, and so it was kind of a big secret. Why, why did you leave? Where, what, you know, what are you doing here in the United States? Very much so. I mean, whether it be neighboring countries or then your final destination, it's hard to then let the community know what your life was. But also, that's such a personal thing, right? We're sitting here and we are, are years beyond our, our initial stories, right? And so we can comfortably speak about this, right? After years of therapy. <laughs> but and, and we're fully assimilated too. I mean, you were educated here. I was educated here. It's it's a lot harder. I'm sure it was for your parents and for my parents too, to come as an adult with a lifetime history. You're middle aged in another country. Completely. And you know. What you said before, no one wants to be a refugee. You know, my my parents kept our my, uh, kept our family in the country for over eight years during the war. Yeah, you know, that shows to what degree they wanted to work and stay and hoped for an end to the war. And like you said, social media now gives you a lot more information, right? If they have the information that we have now about what is happening at the higher scopes right. of, of these things, then yes, they made a made a might have made a decision much sooner. Whereas now, you know, the Ukrainians who are, are becoming refugees, they know, <laughs> they know exactly what's happening. They can read the news, they can see the reports, and they can see what's happening in their neighboring town before it comes to them as well. Yeah, a million, two and a half, over two and a half million people in less than three weeks have, have left the country. But what astounds me when you see the bombardment of the country is how many people are choosing to stay. And, and, and that is what your parents, I'm sure, experienced in my parents too. They, they love their country and their lives there. It's their heritage, their roots, their language, their, their people. And, and so it's not easy. And then you kind of land somewhere. It's not easy there either because suddenly you're an immigrant, you're an outsider. So there's that to be dealt with, right? No one wants to leave home, right? Home is that word, right? That you have deep in your heart. No one wants to leave that if they don't have to. Yeah. So your family actually 
didn't go straight from Afghanistan to the U.S. You kind of had to smuggle yourself someplace else and figure out how to get away. Tell us, tell us what happened. Yeah. So really, that that night after that bonfire, essentially, um, my siblings and my mom left right then and there. And my father had made a plan along with my mother of of how to get to us to, to a neighboring town safely. And the plan was to wait there for my father because my father knew that he was the one that was going to be tracked and followed. And he already had been followed for a while um, and just wanted to get us to safety first. And so we then waited in that village for my father to arrive about a week after or so. And he actually arrived on the day that he told us to leave. He was like, you give me this amount of time. And then if I don't arrive by this point, you should go on. And thankfully he did arrive. And uh, the point, the plan then was to, to escape to Pakistan, which, you know, Afghans are doing now as well and this past summer. But essentially it's it's one it's one route. There's um within the mountains between Afghanistan and Pakistan, there's this place called the Khyber Pass. Um, and that's where my family took about a week-long journey on horseback and by foot um, to get across. And we we got to Pakistan, and Pakistan was a safe haven for us. And um, Pakistan also had its its difficulties for us too. You know, it gave us a safety that my my father would not be imprisoned and taken away, and that we could you know somehow get to our day to day lives without thinking about about dying. However, my parents couldn't work; um, they they weren't allowed to, and. It was only in the outskirts of Pakistan. How did you survive financially during that period? Yeah. So my mom had actually uh, sewn jewels within our clothes because the only thing we had taken with us mm -hmm. from Pakistan was just the clothes in our backs. Our shoes had disintegrated on the walk over, but our, our clothes were still there. So we had some jewels, but even with that, we didn't have much of anything. But the one thing that, that my my parents are rather good at is that well the one thing that actually has saved us time and time again is that they've been physicians right they have a skill set that even though within the major cities of Pakistan they didn't want to utilize um, there was an American-based organization in a rural area in Pakistan called the Northwest Frontier Province near this area called Tal and there um, my, my parents were employed by Americans uh, it was it's right on the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan. So the war was still going on about 20 miles away from us. And there were refugee camps around us. And so this um, clinic, this wartime clinic that, that was set up, essentially aided the Afghan refugees, the local Pakistani population, and then the soldiers that were crossing back and forth. And that's where my mom and dad worked um, for the next three, four years of our lives. Wow. Um, it was a very rural area. There were, there's no infrastructure there. Uh, there's no schools, and so did you. Did you learn how to speak a different language while you were there? Yeah, yeah. So you know, we speak Dari at home, and then there I actually learned Pashto. So um, Pashto is a language that is also in Afghanistan too, but in that in the northwest frontier province, many of the people there speak it as well, because uh, they're also a, a similar ethnic group. Um, too. And then from TV, we, we learned Urdu, too. 
And so do yeah. you speak all of these languages now? No, no. I speak Farsi, Ladari, you know, obviously uh, still with my parents. It's very strange to speak English with them at all. Well, so I speak um, Farsi too. I feel like we should pay a little respect to our Farsi. Salon. <laughs> but, um, most people don't realize that many parts of Afghanistan speak Farsi as well as Iran. So it's a pleasure. Uh, so no, that's the best part of my Persian friends here in the U.S. that we can actually sit around the same table, eat similar foods and enjoy similar cultures as well. Yeah. Yeah. But um, when we were there in Pakistan, in the Northwest Frontier Province, um, there were no schools. And so my siblings and I kind of just figured out what to do throughout our days together. I'm the youngest of four. My sister's the oldest and I have two brothers in between. But what was rather nice uh, as well as really very much so has created what my life has become now is that I was with my mom. I was with my mom majority of my days. And she was at the, the clinic that was made by the, the Afghan, I'm sorry, the American um, volunteers called Freedom Medicine during the day. And then she also made a makeshift clinic beside her home for women who would be delivering at all hours of the day and night. And so you were with her just by chance because you were the youngest? Yeah, so you got to see your mother actually helping other women with reproductive health. Yeah, rather than going to school, that was my day in, day out. And I can't say how much that's impacted me and how much unknowingly it had impacted me. Um, you know, the short, you know, long story short, we were there for three, four years. We made our lives there. Um, at one point we had to leave because there were no schools, right? Uh, my parents wanted to stay and help and do everything that they were doing. That's very much so their passion in life. Um, but they also had responsibilities for four children that they were raising. Um, and there's only so much they could teach at the end of the day at home. And so uh, we got um, our pa papers into the US, um, got refugee status, were able to come here, mostly because of my mom actually, once again, because um, she did reproductive rights and family planning for women as well. Um, and that brought us to the U.S. And, and thankfully all of us, you know, were able to continue our lives and our studies here. Um, but the last few days that we were in Pakistan, last like three to four days when we were at the, the clinic, there were lines and lines of women all coming to say goodbye to my mother. Aww. Because what she was the old model. She was, she has been for you. Is she still alive? Yes, yes, thankfully she's in um, she's in Maryland, like both my parents are. And what she's done for the world, I can't ever, you know, unsee. And it, it really, you know, my parents are amazing people. I can't thank them enough for everything they've done for me and my siblings, but also for the world in general. And my mom just kind of having that idea that there's a strong female who has given her life to help others and then we came to the U.S. and actually, I don't think I, I told you this before, Holly, but my mom isn't practicing here. She's not a practicing doctor, right? So she gave up that role she had, right? She was the only female physician and a, a large, large radius. The only doctor that these women were allowed to see because of their own, you know, cultural norms. And she gave that position up by, because of us children and making sure that the next generation could also help. 
And how old was she when that, that, that's a huge sacrifice. It's not just a profession, but for your mother, it's a passion and a life's work. Yeah, that she was in her early forties at that point. Mm. Has she been able to do anything? I'm, I'm, I'm sure she's vicariously living through you, but I'm sure she's found other outlets for her passion. Yeah, she does do work in terms of, especially in the, in the last few years of, you know, um, like she spoke about COVID and had that for the Afghan community back in Kabul. Uh, you know, she still does outreach in ways of, you know, how to globally help in a way where she's still, you know, an Afghan female physician here trying to help out, um, just not hands-on with, you know, with her, with her two hands. But that does bring up a good point. You mentioned COVID. And I know for many people, especially here in the United States, for the first time, we clearly saw a disparity between wealth and poverty and living and dying. I mean, I, I remember the, the people putting themselves out on the line, the Tyson factory worker, um, the person that has to drive the Uber, the person who's making delivery groceries. Um, generally, those positions don't pay very well. There's not health insurance, and they don't have the luxury like many of us did of, you know, telemedicine or working from home like I do. And so they they and they don't have access to healthcare. And so I I know that this is one of your passions. Is you know I, I know you work at Columbia, and so you work with the normal average person, but I, I think you also have a passion for helping women in poverty. Talk to us a little bit about some of the statistics surrounding women in poverty and, and what, what you do to help. Definitely, I mean, that's, that's actually one of the reasons, main reasons I'm at Columbia. Um, Columbia is an interesting place, and I think there's something about it that many people don't realize is that it's situated in Washington Heights in New York City. And Washington Heights is not, you know, the Upper East Side, it's not Midtown. You're, the Washington Heights area in terms of socioeconomic level and status is much lower. And so when we were going through the worst of COVID, our hospitals were full, you know, and what we, you couldn't turn a blind eye at that point. The fact that the, the epicenter of the epicenter of the worst of COVID was going on in our communities that were, you know, of different races, of lower socioeconomic levels, even in a small area like Manhattan, right? Yeah. You know, you know, Washington Heights to another neighborhood is less than a mile away. And yet we have drastically different, you know, mortality and morbidity when it comes to both COVID, um, whether it be for the normal population or then after that women and then pregnant women too. And that's the part that I think made everyone look at this in a way that they haven't in a long time because although disparities have always existed we were able you know the general public if you're not seeing patients day in day out to be able to say hey yeah there's disparities but you know it's just socioeconomic it's not race at all it's just socioeconomic or no it's just race it's not like this or that and then with COVID having numbers occur right in front of you so drastically you couldn't keep a blind eye on that and you couldn't hide it anymore. I came to Columbia for two reasons. Um, one, the Washington Heights population that we serve. Um, that is, is something that is very much so a part of what I want to make sure I do 
the rest of my life. You know, when I came to the U.S., the clinics of my family went to that I went to were the free clinics. Yeah. And those are the clinics I still want to work in as well and make sure that I am a part of that process too. And, and I think your vantage point, because you were one, right, of those people, you don't view them as less than. I think, I think that's part of what happens in our society. We're so capitalist and I'm not knocking that system. Our system of government and freedom is the best in the world, right? But power, money is power here in this country. And so we, we have a tendency to look down on poverty, that somebody is less than. But when you've come yourself through that, um, you realize that everyone has the same potential. Oh, very much so. I mean, uh, understanding, you know, when I came here, I remember going to doctor's visits with my mom and the, and the doctors or nurses, whatever staff member that was talking to us would be, you know, speaking very loudly because we didn't speak the language, but then also not realizing that they're talking to a doctor, you know, that my mom is a physician and um, not giving her the due respect or, you know, just the levity that she might have an understanding of what they're talking about too. And that I think is the biggest thing of no matter where you go, understanding that we all come from a, a huge range of backgrounds and that everyone deserves a respect when they walk in through that door. And so I have the luxury of working you know, in the, in the clinics up in the Washington, Washington Heights, and then my clinics down in Midtown as well. And I serve women day in, day out. And then the other part that has really been wonderful about Columbia and myself is that they allow me to do my global work too. And so, you know, that, that image of leaving Pakistan and having those women waiting for my mom to say goodbye, but also them knowing that once she leaves, there would not be another female physician there for who knows how long has stayed with me. And Columbia allows me to go abroad and actually work abroad. So the skills that I've thankfully gained here in the US through the, you know, the capitalism that does occur here and you know, the, the education that does occur here now can be you know, brought to other places as well too. Um, and that has been amazing, but also COVID has stopped a lot of that, right? We've become so insular again because of this. And once again, having, you know, status, money, wealth changes your life drastically with this, whether it be within the smallest little radius of Manhattan or, you know, whether it be cross borders to Malawi. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you and, and really share your passion to help other people. I know that um, on the investment side, which is kind of what I do, we've seen the greatest explosion and in inflows into ESG funds, for example, following COVID, following George Floyd, following every the disparities between the haves and the have-nots that people for the first time witnessed because of social media and, and, and just wanting to make a difference. So um, I know you mentioned to me earlier some statistics around women and childbirth and tell our audience about women and, and why women's health care is so important to you. Definitely. Um, so I, you know, I always knew I wanted to be a physician. I always knew I wanted to help people. 
And it wasn't until I was in medical school and um, this paper came out by Paul Farmer and it, uh, he wrote it with a surgeon and essentially it was this paper and Paul Farmer, you know, who unfortunately passed away recently, you know, had done so much for, for the world of global health. Yeah. And very much so in the non-surgical uh, realm. And this paper essentially was like, hey, surgeons, you know, where, where are you? You know, truly the number one and two, you know, reasons that people die worldwide is motor vehicle accidents and postpartum hemorrhage. Yeah. And I read that and I was like, wait a second, postpartum hemorrhage, right? Postpartum we can fix that, right? We can fix that. <laughs> yeah, I was on labor and delivery just week last week as a medical student, saw postpartum hemorrhage, and it was very easily dealt with, right? We had steps and techniques, and there was an algorithm, and it was fine. And two, you know, an hour, two hours later, that mom was breastfeeding her child. And amazing. That's Amazing, because that used to be the leading cause of death for women in the United States at some point, right? Yeah. And so it, it can be fixed, but you have to have access. Right. And I think having the idea that you have the knowledge of how to fix something and the resources are not something that's very difficult to get, and yet it's still not fixed, makes you think that, hey, maybe I should go and do this, right? Yeah. There is a remedy, there is a solution. And I there's just not many of us helping out. And reading that paper actually was kind of changed my life in, in multiple ways. One, it made me want to do OBGYN. I was like, well, you know, I have this passion for, for, for medicine and, and for women's health. And that's always been a part of me as an Afghan female, especially with my mom being who she is. And then also seeing, you know, the drastic change of other women in my own family where didn't didn't have the same, you know, opportunity that she did. And so women's health had always been a great part of it, but now that there's this way where I can, you know, fuse my my love for surgery as well as, you know, global health in a way that made sense for 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 me and hopefully the people I, I get to serve as well. I love that story. Um... As you know, and I think we've talked about, women in the United States today have unprecedented amounts of wealth. Um, actually, they control up to two thirds of the nation's wealth, which is close to $20 trillion. So uh, to put that in perspective, um, we have about $30 trillion of debt as, as a country. And it was 20 trillion before the pandemic. So this is a huge amount of wealth. What, what is the one thing you would say to our, our audience today if they want to make a difference using their wealth? So let's turn capitalism on its head and turn it away from greed and to toward, toward doing good. What would you suggest would have the greatest impact for women's health for our audience? Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, all these things that you've just said, those numbers are staggering. Staggering and amazing, you know. Yeah. The fact that we're there, right? Is 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 a is a both a wonderful responsibility to have, but the weight of that responsibility should be felt by many of us. Yes. And I think step one is understanding that there is a cause that with organization, strategy, and funding can improve the lives of many. 
And like we said before, the pandemic put a spotlight on healthcare disparities in the US for the general public that you can't ignore in any way. Within that, an understanding that women's health still here is underfunded. So when we actually look at NIH studies, right? So governmental sponsored studies and the money that majority of us that we get for research. And we look at how much of that goes to women's health initiatives. It's less than 10%, even less than that. It's staggering how little amount of money we get for research, for innovation, as well as just general health for women. So are you saying that 90% of that money goes to general health for men or people in general, but not women? Right, not women specific things, right? So not endometriosis, not fibroids, not urinary incontinence, not prolapse, not obstetrics, right? And, and I, although I guess the problem with that, just to help our audience understand what you're saying, for many, many years, people thought heart attacks occurred the same way for men and women because they didn't specifically study or target women only to find out that women present very differently during a heart attack. And so many heart attacks were going undetected. And by the time they got treatment, it was too late. And so exactly. it's very important to step, you know, women are not men with different organs, right? right. We're, we're completely different. Exactly. And I think, you know, that women weren't even allowed in studies in the U.S. until like the, the late 2000s. You know, it's, 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 it's something that, even women who are pregnant right now still have to fight to be allowed in different studies as well. Too. The fact that pregnant women can get the COVID vaccine was a huge fight that was done. Wow. These things should not be fights. Yeah. Yeah. And they still are. And I think funding for women's health in general should start with both research as well as growing institutions that are training the future. Mm. Those are the places where we go from the ground up um, and, and for women's health right now, you have some amazing people out there who wanna work, you know, who have made this their lives and they compete every day to get funding or, you know, not just, you know, the one thing we hear about all the time is breast cancer. One out of eight women, you know, that's a stat that many people know, one out of eight women will get breast cancer in their lives. Yeah. One out of three women will have either urinary incontinence or prolapse. It's a hugely high number, and yet no one knows what urinary incontinence or prolapse even is, right? That's something that- And women don't want to talk about it, which is part of the problem. Right. It's, it's hidden, it's behind closed doors, but there, that's one of many health conditions that women face that no one knows much about in the general public because we never talk about it, but there's also no funding for it. Men don't want to talk about erectile dysfunction and yet Viagra and infra commercials for it and everything else is in our face, right? And it's also yeah. covered. It's in so hair. embarrassing if you have a little girl at home, right? <laughs> But, you know, all of that is still in our face. You know, we, we have to ingest it no matter what we want or don't want to be a part of our lives. The same goes for insurance coverage for, for those medications for these conditions that men have. And yet the same is not true for women. Day in, day out, I have medications I can prescribe for my patients that are not covered by insurance for their overactive bladder or your, their urinary incontinence. And I have to fight with insurance companies. 
because they are female driven <laughs> medications. And the research is not quite there to show these companies that, hey, this is something that we should do. And the funding is not there and the people advocating is not there. And so there's a lot of places where we can, you know, spread our love here. However, I think starting with research and starting with growing these institutions to help advocate for women's health, whether it be obstetrics or not obstetrics, that's the other part too, where, you know, the little bit of, of attention we do get as a woman during our health lives is really when we're, we're pregnant and having children. But there's a lot of life after that. There's a lot of life before that. It's also equally as important. And that needs to have more research done for it. Yeah, and I know for our audience, this could be anything from philanthropy, right? To actually investing in companies that are doing um, innovative, technologically advanced things for women's health, right? Yeah, I mean, that's the part where these things do exist. There are researchers, there are companies, there are people trying to get this new frontier, but they need help, they need support. Yeah, um, I, I can't tell you what a pleasure it's been talking to you. Um, let's see, what can I call you? Immigrant, refugee, amazing doctor, um, social anthropologist, <laughs> all of the things that you do. Um, Keep up the good fight, and we look forward uh, with great interest to see what evolves in your future. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Holly. This has been a pleasure and an honor to be here. Holly Madasser, CPA, is a partner and senior wealth management advisor at Stearns Financial Group, an investment management firm with offices in Chapel Hill in Greensboro, North Carolina. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC member FINRA SIPC. Hightower Advisors LLC is an SEC registered investment advisor. Refer to brokercheck.finra.org for more information. This podcast is copyrighted and all rights are reserved. The content of this podcast is for information only and not intended to serve as financial, legal, medical, or any other form of professional advice.